Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. Millions of students in America do not have access to the technology they need to succeed in the digital world. Verizon Innovative Learning has helped over a million kids get free tech education, and they'll help two million more by 2021. Learn more at verizoninnovativelearning.com slash vox. That's verizoninnovativelearning.com slash vox. It's quite a hefty white paper. I, because I care about the environment, just copied down a couple ah, of choice as, quotes. As did I. I care about the jobs. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Sarah Cliff and Ezra Klein, and uh, we got we got some good stuff. We got a white paper. We're going to talk about a big issue. An illegitimacy crisis. Yes. But... First, we haven't talked about the Affordable Care Act in a while. The what? The that's actually, Care Act. that's like a weird time that's actually true for the weeds. Yeah, I know. It's been gone for a while. Sarah's been I gone wonder, for a I while. I wonder what happened that made us not talk about it as much. Well. Uh, who's to say, really? <laughs> who knows? Um, <laughs> but we want to talk about something that's going on with this that is uh, of interest to me and you know, lightly related to the Brett Kavanaugh story um, in that it involves the Supreme Court, but also Sarah, um, our friend Misha, from Wisconsin. Yes. He's got a plan to repeal the Affordable Care Act. He does. Can you explain what it is? We have a man with a plan. Because it's it's hard for me to even explain it with a straight face. I will explain it. Okay, so Texas versus United States is the latest court challenge to the Affordable Care Act as keen followers of the ACA litigation drama. I'm sure um, we have many of those in our listenership on the weeds will know this has just been like an onslaught of lawsuits and an onslaught of lawsuits that start with like from the place. Well, that seems like a crazy court challenge. And then three years later, they're at the Supreme Court and like the ACA is teetering on repeal. Um, So this lawsuit, Texas versus United States, it is brought by 20 conservative attorneys general. And it it's a multi-part argument. So the first part of the argument oh, it is, is a indeed. multi-part <laughs> argument because it's crazy. Just, okay, uh, guys, guys. <laughs> it is a multi-part argument that starts off arguing that the individual mandate as <laughs> – you guys are like laughing in the studio. 
The individual mandate. It's the craziest. Okay, argument. okay, okay. Let's let's talk it through, okay. and then we can. So talk there was about an individual it. mandate. So there was an individual mandate, and there was a lawsuit that yes. said that was unconstitutional yes. because you can't regulate inactivity. Yes, but John Roberts said. John Roberts said because it is a tax, like it is, it is saved by the fact it is a tax. Congress has the authority to levy a tax on people that do not purchase health insurance. So the individual mandate is saved there. So what happened to that tax? So what happened to that tax is in the tax reform bill of December 2017, that tax was lowered to zero. And this is crucial because we often said at the time that it had been repealed. And it had not been repealed because Congress would need a 60-vote majority in order to repeal it. So what they did is, and at the time it was like, well, it's essentially the same. Zero dollar tax, no tax. It's essentially the same as repeal. So Right now, we have an individual mandate that stands but has a $0 penalty, so essentially it has been neutered. Along comes, you know, this enterprising group of conservative attorneys generals who say, well, no, the mandate is now unconstitutional because there's nothing to save it. It's not a tax anymore. It doesn't have any of the defining features of a tax. This argument, you know, I I would say a lot of people haven't spent a lot of time on it because it feels a bit moot to a lot of legal scholars. Like, so what? Declared unconstitutional? Like, you know, that's fine. It really doesn't have any consequence, except these attorneys general argue it has this a lot of consequence. This is the part, to be clear. <laughs> so the attorneys general argue that the individual mandate, and this will feel very familiar to people who followed the first case, that the individual mandate is not severable from the rest of the law. That if the individual mandate falls, and they argue a very, very extreme version of this, that the entire rest of the law falls. <laughs> right. And we're not just talking about like the insurance reforms. We're talking about requirements that Medicare do payment reform and these new, like, calorie labels on menus, like, literally the entire law falls because one part of it is found unconstitutional. And to be clear, the part that's unconstitutional, right, is they're asking them to find that it is unconstitutional to levy a $0 tax. Yes. So that instead of not charging you, the government has to continue not charging you. (laughs) but that all this unrelated stuff should be thrown out. So let me walk through. So there's that position. The Trump administration has taken, I mean, like in this context, it's more moderate, but it's still a pretty extreme position that they argue that the entire law does not fall, but some key things related to the individual mandate should fall if the courts find the mandate unconstitutional. They argue that the ban on pre-existing conditions, that should fall because it is so intertwined with the individual mandate, as well as the community rating feature, which is the part that requires insurers to charge everybody the same prices. So this is, you know, a, a weird situation. And, you know, it's somewhat troubling situation. The administration essentially saying, we're not going to defend this law, that we actually agree in part with the people bringing the challenge to our federal law that certain parts of the Affordable Care Act ought to fall. So this has led to a situation where you actually have a number of Democratic attorneys general stepping in to defend the Affordable Care Act, since the federal government essentially said they're not willing to make that argument. There are oral arguments in a Texas district court on September 5th where the conservative attorneys general, they essentially asked for an immediate injunction. Um, And one of the ideas they suggested, which would be a pretty bananas outcome, is that the district judge there should, if he's not willing to stop the law in all the states, they should stop the law in the states bringing the lawsuit. So in those 20 states, um, Obamacare should stop existing. If that injunction is issued, you can actually, you know, the, the Supreme Court might have to get involved pretty quickly in this lawsuit. 
So that's kind of the scope of it. And I would say, so just to kind of give a little bit of context to this, obviously, you know, the Affordable Care Act has been constantly challenged in court. It's been this onslaught of legal challenges. We can talk a little bit more because I've been reading a lot and talked to a number of people who are involved in the lawsuit, who support the lawsuit. I'd say it's a smaller universe of conservatives than the previous lawsuits have had. I think it was pretty notable that um, there was an amicus brief filed by um, kind of the regular names in these battles, Jonathan Adler, Nick Bagley, Abby Gluck, Ilya Soman, and Kevin Walsh, who, if you're, again, followers of this drama, you know are typically on different sides of this. Yeah, that's a super interesting (laughs) Jonathan Adler and Ilya Soman, generally opponents of the Affordable Care Act. Jonathan Adler, one of the architects of the last Supreme Court challenge, King versus Birdwell. Nick Bagley, Abby Gluck, two supporters of the Affordable Care Act. I like that that's a brief basically on behalf of the healthcare legal blogosphere. Yes, I would say it's the incidental (laughs) economist. Universe brief. Um, And I think what's interesting about that brief is they don't take a position on the constitutionality of the mandate. They say, we're not going to talk about that. But all of them agree on the severability. You know, what they say is in their brief is that under current Supreme Court doctrine, a court must offer its best guess on what Congress would have wanted for the rest of the statute if a single provision is rendered unenforceable. But this guessing game inquiry does not come into play where, as here, Congress itself has essentially eliminated the provision in question, left the rest of the statute standing. So This is the context around it. But then again, you know, I would say with Affordable Care Act legislation and with a changing judiciary that, you know, we're going to talk about more later in this episode, yes, it feels like a long shot challenge, but maybe it isn't necessarily something we can write off as just, you know, a crazy town challenge. Oh, you can never write anything off. Let me say a couple of things here. So I want to make a severability argument as well. I don't think you can sever what the conservative legal community does from what the conservative legal community says it believes courts should do. If you've been listening to the recent arguments about the Supreme Court, on the right, one of the arguments has continuously been the reason court battles have gotten so hot, the reason all this has become such a mess is because of all of this legislating from the bench, this constant legislating from the bench, just these unelected judges legislating from the bench. And here, what 20 attorneys general, um, Republican attorneys general want to do and what the uh, Trump administration is backing them up at least partially on doing is staying to the court. Congress did this thing. It did a very clear thing. It decided not to repeal Obamacare. It decided to take the mandate down to zero without touching anything else in the bill. And we would like you to look at that. And then decide that Congress actually believes. And and if you read the arguments for this brief for the conservative side here, this is what they say. The Congress actually believes that if you take out the individual mandate entirely, the whole bill has to fall. That would be legislating from the bench in such an insane, extravagant, grandiose way that it's hard to even know what to say about it. I I just want to make one distinction here. When the original version of this case came about, what the basic argument was about was Obamacare's constitutionality. The idea was that if the individual mandate is not constitutional, well, the individual mandate is an essential part of Obamacare. If it had not been there, Congress would have never passed it. And so the whole thing has to fall. I thought that was a dumb argument too. What they're basically arguing was just straightforwardly, the law is not constitutional. And that they're, you know, that there was an intent in Congress that if part of it was unconstitutional, they may as well just undo the whole thing and let Congress start over. That made Again, not a ton of sense, but a lot more sense than Congress has made a specific scalpel-like incision in the bill. What that really shows now is that the thing is now that's going to be unconstitutional. And despite it having no real difference in effect, we're going to – by taking out the individual mandate as opposed to bringing it to zero, we're going to take down the whole bill because that's what Congress would have really wanted us to do or needed us to do. 
it's crazy. And it just to me, like in addition to being something we have to take seriously, one thing it shows is that we don't really have to take seriously this idea that conservatives don't want the Supreme Court to legislate from the bench. This is what legislating from the bench looks like. But it's also – I mean for one thing, right? Like it's true that this is legislating from the bench but also every ruling that every conservative judge has made throughout all of American history is legislating from the bench. At a certain point, I think the game of like, aha, it turns out they're not really adhering to these principles like is a little dumb, right? Particularly because in this case, like – there's a real logic, I think, to the attorneys general's view that like congressional Republicans actually do want to completely eliminate the Affordable Care Act, right? What's interesting here is not so much that they are asking the courts to do something that Congress doesn't want to do, but that they are asking courts to do something that Congress fanatically desires to do, right? There's well, not a, Congress. So congressional Republicans. Yes, the, I think that's important because sure. this is speaking on behalf of Congress's institution, right. which is a problem. But I mean the Republicans running Congress fervently want, they desperately want to deregulate the health insurance industry. They really profoundly want to bring back a universe in which insurance companies are not subject to these community rating and guaranteed issue policies. They keep voting for bills that will do that. They keep putting judges on the bench who will rule this way. Their allies in the movement, the attorneys general, are bringing this lawsuit. Like This is what they want to do, but it's unpopular. So they're out there now with ads everywhere claiming that they support this, just like during the repeal debate, right? Like one of Paul Ryan's initial like top 10 amazing facts about ACA was like it protects people with pre-existing conditions and then it didn't, right? And like that is the hypocrisy that matters here, right? Like yes, like everybody plays dumb games about legislating from the bench. But like there is a policy disagreement about healthcare in the United States in which Republicans won't own up to what their policy view is. And that's the appeal of this judicial method. Because like there are multiple attorneys general who have signed on to this lawsuit who are now claiming that like they secretly support legislation that would address this. And like they just don't. So there is actually like a bill that supposedly addresses this that really doesn't address this. So one way you could see this playing out is Congress could say, no, 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 that wasn't our intention, and we will pass legislation to make it, like, super crystal clear what the intention of the 2017 Congress is, that we don't see that the rest of the law needs to fall. But that's not what's happening. So what happened is there's a group of um, 10 Republicans led by Tom Tillis of um, North Carolina who introduced a bill called Ensuring Coverage for Patients with Pre-Existing Conditions Act um, that is described in a press release as legislation that would guarantee Americans have equal health care coverage regardless of their health status or pre-existing conditions. Unfortunately, that is not actually what the bill does. So the bill does say that, yes, insurance companies have to offer health insurance coverage to all people. However, it does not say that that health insurance has to cover their pre-existing condition. So that's like if I am a cancer patient— you know, Aetna, Cigna, whoever, they have to offer me health insurance, but they can say, no, we're not going to cover your cancer treatment, but we will sell you health insurance, Sarah Cliff. Or, you know, because I'm a woman in my 30s, we have to offer you health insurance, but we might not cover like pregnancy as a benefit. So, so it's a guaranteed issue, but with like no regulations on what is issued. Yes. Neat. <laughs> so that's like, you know, speak to Matt's point in a way. Like, 
And it's this weird thing because everyone, all the Republican senators know that covering pre-existing conditions is really, really popular, but it also raises premiums, makes things more expensive for people who want skimpier plans. So you end up with these like bills that really do not do the things that they say they are doing. And, you know, in a way, making it easier for a challenge like this to go forward because Congress really does have the ability to kind of like cut this off at the knees if they want to. Um, But you don't see them doing that. And instead, you see them putting out legislation that isn't really going to protect people with pre-existing conditions if a lawsuit like this, you know, were decided against the Affordable Care Act. Well, this gets, I think, to a big issue. So we've been talking here a little bit about this difference between, like, Congress and the congressional majority and, like, Republicans in Congress, right? There are all kinds of ways to think about what do you mean when you say, like, what Congress intended to do? Like, Congress now? Congress five years ago? Like, the Congress of the future? The majority? Like, a super uh, filibuster-proof majority? And, And so this becomes, like, a big problem. One of the things that I think people miss about congressional gridlock is it because the group foiled amidst congressional gridlock is often the majority party? It's not that nothing happens, but that the zone in which things are happening gets moved around. And this happens a lot. So a, a good example here is actually the, is Dreamers. Back during the big Democratic Congresses of 2009-2010, Democrats in Congress almost passed – a bill protecting dreamers. I believe, if I'm not misremembering, it failed 59 to 41 in the Senate. So it's like they were one vote away from having a filibuster-proof majority. And because they didn't get it, but because also a majority wanted it to happen, when Barack Obama went and did it as an executive authority, he had Democratic support. It's not like, like if Congress had been overwhelmingly opposed. They could have passed a bill making that illegal, changing the president's um, capabilities on immigration, whatever it might have been. You saw this on um, energy too, the, the clean power regulations that the administration did. Democrats in Congress was a majority that wanted to see a cap and trade bill. They weren't able to get it done. And then they wanted Obama to do that. And then when Republicans didn't have the votes to stop him. And so here too, like what's happening is that, uh, as you both say, like there's a Republican majority in Congress that does not have the votes actually because of the way Congress works to actually repeal Obamacare or to do the kind of incisions or reforms that they truly want to do. And so now you're seeing this sort of weird cross-branch effort at cooperation, where like at the state level, even these attorneys general bringing suit, the members of Congress like Tillis are trying to like offer like a little bit of sucker to it. Donald Trump and the executive branch, his Justice Department is coming out with this weird sort of like halfway agreeing and asking the court to do what neither Donald Trump nor Republicans in Congress can do. And so you just end up in this very strange place where I take all of your points that, you know, I guess obviously everything is legislating from the bench, but One of the problems with the legislature not legislating in a way anybody finds satisfying or in a way that is clear is you often have these frustrated majorities that hold a lot of power across the rest of the government and then try to use it in in, in weird ways. When I give talks about how government works, I I try to tell people that like – One of the things about gridlock is that when you're in gridlock, people take weird city streets places, right? You use really weird, bad routes to get around gridlock. And that's what happens in government too. Gridlock isn't nothing happening. It's not true paralysis. It's often things happening in the second, third, or fourth best way where they're trying to get to the outcome they want using branches of government or forms of authority that don't let them – um, cleanly get the outcome they want that instead require this insane sophistry mixed with the courts or executive agencies taking on powers that they really shouldn't be Right. I, I just want to emphasize, though, that in this particular case, a salient aspect of it is that Republicans are pretending to not want 
the outcome that they want. Right. Like when Democrats tried to pass the DREAM Act and failed, they then after that were like, damn, I wish I'd passed that DREAM Act because I really want to help those dreamers. And so then when Obama did an executive action to help the dreamers, Democrats were like, that's good because we helped those dreamers, which is what we wanted to do. And the specifics of the protecting the pre-existing conditions, it's not just that like, well, Republicans fell short because of filibuster rules and so now they're going through the side streets. They keep saying every step of the way that they want to preserve the protections for the people with pre-existing conditions. But what they're saying here on the big level is that they want to repeal Obamacare. And like as I understand the Republican theory on this, if they could actually kill the whole thing, they believe that would give them the political – energy and momentum to replace it with what they really want. And like right, I agree what, that it wouldn't do pre-existing conditions, but I, I don't – like what they are saying they want to do is repeal Obamacare. That sure, is what they right, want right, to do. Right. I, I, exactly. But when you say to them, if someone says let's repeal Obamacare and then I say I don't agree with repealing Obamacare because it will hurt people with pre-existing conditions, what they then say is no, no, no. We have a plan to protect people with pre-existing conditions, but they don't. Like Donald Trump at rallies right. goes and says he has a plan to protect people with pre-existing conditions. He does not. But what is so silent about that in this case? I agree that that's true. But, well, just but that draw that the line for me. There is a huge potential source for public misunderstanding, right? Like if you look at the Dreamer saga and you came away with that with the view that Barack Obama is trying to help these dreamers and Republicans are trying to have harsh immigration enforcement, like that's correct if you like <laughs> listen to what people are saying, right? Like on health care though, the whole thing Republicans are doing, like we just had a huge high profile fight about the Supreme Court and like never in that moment did a single Republican senator suggest that part of what they're trying to do with these judicial nominations is deregulate the health insurance industry. But like they are, right? Like there's a thing like you could watch cable news all day, every day, you could be listening to every Donald Trump speech and you would have no idea that, like, he's working to deregulate the health insurance industry. But, like, he is. And I think that's, like, the most important thing that people have to know about this. Yeah, no, I think that is a fair point of kind of where things are. And I think, like, the it's more the reaction from Congress that makes that point to me, even more than legislation, is creating a bill that has in its name, you know, protecting people with pre-existing conditions that does not, in fact, protect people with pre-existing conditions. You know, I would say I, I do I do hear Republican rhetoric around deregulating the insurance industry. There's too much government bureaucracy. I, I don't think it is drawn out yes, to, like, Yes, I mean, the there's too much government bureaucracy. But, yes. like, they're not saying. They're they, not, they never yes. say. One of our firm beliefs here is that there should be no protection for people with pre-existing yes. conditions. But it really is. It's like the fixed point around which— all of their healthcare actions revolve is that like if you're sick, you should be fucked. And like that's what people need to know. So there's one other thing I want to hit on in this particular lawsuit that I found very clarifying. There's a great blogger at Health Affairs, Katie Keith, who's also um, teaches at Georgetown. And I think the thing she wrote that kind of like crystallized the lawsuit that might, you know, be helpful for you all to hear as well, is that the parties she writes seem to agree on the case turns on legislative intent, but disagree on whose legislative intent, whether it's the Congress that adopted the ACA in 2010 or the Congress that zeroed out the individual mandate penalty in 2017. And I think that's like a really helpful frame for thinking about this particular lawsuit, that you have the plaintiff saying the thing that matters is the intent of the people who wrote this lawsuit. And, you know, one of the things they actually bring up a lot is um, the government's 
arguments in the original individual mandate legislation where you actually had the Obama administration arguing that this doesn't work without the individual mandate, basically directing the court to say, you know, if you take down the mandate, you should take guaranteed issue and community rating provisions with it. Josh Blackman, who's one of the kind of conservative bloggers who's been arguing in favor of the lawsuit, he cites, you know, some of the briefs that um, Varelli, the former solicitor general, was submitting in 2010, where he was citing Congress's findings that, quote, the guaranteed issue and community rating provisions are inseparable from the minimum coverage provisions. Carnesworth has expressly found that the minimum coverage provision is essential to creating effective health insurance markets. It's evident that Congress would not have intended guaranteed issue and community rating reforms to stand if the minimum coverage provision that are twice described as essential were held unconstitutional. So that's kind of the argument you have from the group bringing this lawsuit. The argument which we've kind of made already here is that this intent is kind of irrelevant to what happened in 2017, that what the courts really need to look at is actually the tax bill that passed in December 2017. And there it seems very clear that they made this surgical incision to take out the individual mandate while leaving the rest of this intact. And, you know, arguing that this is a bit moot what happened in 2010. What we're looking at is the intention of the 2017 Congress. What I think is so odd about that argument is is the way it kind of stacks different situations on top of each other to create an outcome no one ever intended. So it's like you have a Congress that intended to pass the Affordable Care Act and did. And then there's a conservative lawsuit to call the individual mandate unconstitutional. The Obama administration, among other things it argues, in the course of trying to make the maximum possible case they can to protect the individual mandate under the Commerce Clause, says, listen, it is essential to other things in the bill, and thus it is viable under our Commerce Clause powers. We are regulating interstate commerce. Like, that's what this bill does with insurance. Like, the the individual mandate is part of that. Like, it all needs to be there together. And they're kind of raising the stakes on the Supreme Court. John Roberts, because he wants to throw Republicans a bone, agrees with the Republican take on the Commerce Clause because the thing attacks and says that it's all fine because it's a tax. And so then you have this new Congress come in. They could have repealed Obamacare outright. They could have done that with more or less with 51 votes or certainly repealed a lot of it, and they don't. And then they zero out the individual mandate. And so now the idea is that instead of the true intent of the bill being (laughs) the intent during its last um, alteration, it's the intent expressed in the losing argument in the first court case that an argument made in response to – and of course nobody believes that it would have been the Democrats in Congress who passed that bill. No one anywhere at any level in this, including Josh, believes that it would have been their intent that if the individual mandate was rendered invalid by the Supreme Court, that you repeal the rest of the thing. And we know how we know that because after the Supreme Court, when this was all going on, there were all of these people talking about how to preserve the plan and how to preserve the bill. And it's just the whole thing is such – I mean, this to me is like, we're going to talk a little bit about the question of delegitimizing the court and and what's happening there in, in the next segment. But this to me feels like part of the problem, that the arguments being made are in such like unbelievable, catastrophic bad faith that we end up, like it feels, I know we have to take this seriously because it might all happen, right? We, we take it seriously because there's power behind it. But like, it feels just like laying out the pure logic of this is almost like filling our listeners' heads with nonsense. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's the Supreme Court. They can do what they want. Um, I think just what's more interesting is that, like, this is what Republicans want, right? Like, they could say, right? Like, you could easily have, like, waved this off, 
right? Like a couple hotshot conservative legal scholars like came up with this idea. And like people at, you know, like conservative donor HQ could have been like, nah, guys, like don't do this, right? And like that would have sent a nice signal like down the line to the courts, to the other senators, to attorneys general who wanted to run for higher office. And then you would have a fringe lawsuit, right? That like three state attorneys general signed on to. But like we don't have that. Like instead, clearly up at conservative HQ, they heard this and they were like, let's do it, guys. And that's why you have 22 attorneys general, right? And like that's what's interesting. According to – I think 20 and two solicitors. OK. I don't – A lot. A lot. Though. At any rate, like it, it's – this is a, a mainstream Republican Party cause – in a way that is um, right. almost different than King versus Burwell, which kind of like I felt like came up like a little bit to the side of the mainstream, whereas this yes. one is coming up like really with the indoor. Like you have two Senate candidates, um, you know, a candidate in West Virginia, a candidate in Missouri who are signed on as attorneys generals for their states. Like I think that's a good point that this is not like incidental. Like, and they've signed on the to, a, to the, a, the, a more extreme claim than even the the Trump administration's, yes. right? To like the full everything goes view. And well, and even beyond that, are asking the court for everything to go immediately, right. like in their 20 states. Like leave it for California, but like in our 20 states, end it right now. That and, would be such a dog catches the car situation. Can I you agree. imagine if like in those 20 states, like let's say like the court did this tomorrow, right before the midterms. And in those 20 yeah. states, millions of people lost health care instantly? Absolutely. Like why would they want this? <laughs> but, well, but, but, but that's what I think is – Another important takeaway here because it, it gives you a sense – you know, we were talking about Kavanaugh. You can talk about particular nominees and what they think. But it's like what does the conservative establishment want the judiciary to do, right? And like what they are asking for here is to take the absolute most sweeping kind of vision of this, right? Like clearly not because – of some narrow concern about the metaphysics of a $0 tax, but because, like, they really want to use the judiciary branch to start making economic policy headway, right? Like, there have been – I wrote an article about this. There's been, like, these little nips and pokes dating back to the 90s about trying to, like – nibble away at Congress's ability to make economic policy. But like this would be a really big deal. And whether John Roberts will go for it or not, like who's to say? But like the conservative institutions that are vetting the district court judges and circuit court judges of tomorrow and are deciding Brett Kavanaugh is the guy that they want, like they are signed on to not just like this lawsuit but to this strategy that like in the future economic policy ideas that are not popular enough to go through Congress, they're going to do through the courts and, you know, we should we should watch out for that. And I think, like, kind of thinking that forward a little bit. So you think about, like, other legislation. Like, one of the big things in healthcare, like, Democrats want to do is Medicare for all. Like, sure. what is – I don't even know what the realm of legislative challenges a Medicare for all bill could face because, like, this challenge that we're talking about today, this was, like, not in, like, in the size of brain that I have. Like, this is in the <laughs> galaxy brain of um, of challenges. Who knows what challenges might come up? And, like, I'm kind of curious, like, how – Democrats might take that into account as they look at a more conservative court, as they think about, is it even worth pursuing this legislation? Like, 
knowing that it faces longer odds at the courts than it would have. Like, you have not seen any other healthcare program face the, like, onslaught of judicial challenges that the Affordable Care Act has, which I think you can argue, even though none of them have— well, I guess the birth control one sort of succeeded the Supreme Court, but none of them have taken it apart. It's still taken a toll. There's there's millions of people in Texas and Florida. Okay, so yes, I take that statement back then. Um, Yeah, so you have, you know, millions of people who don't have health insurance because of one decision— And even though the law stands, I think it's certainly contributed to the polarization and, you know, sense of this law as, you know, not fully permanent, the fact that it's constantly under legal challenge. I think that matters and that could shape how legislation is made in Congress going forward. Let's take a break and talk about the legitimacy of the court. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow dot com slash weeds. So that conversation, I think, is a good backdrop to, to what's been happening in the aftermath of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation, which is that, look, Brett Kavanaugh was um, nominated by the president of the United States. He was confirmed by a Republican majority in the U.S. Senate. Um, it's a total, like, on some level, normal confirmation process. And yet, in the aftermath, there's been a real sense of it having an illegitimacy to it. There's been discussion on the Democratic side about court packing in the future, returning to that as an idea, about the possibility of impeaching Kavanaugh at some point. There's been a very intense focus on disproportionate representation in the U.S. Senate, noting that the senators who voted to confirm Kavanaugh represent 44 percent of the country. The senators who voted to reject him represent 56 percent of the country. And I think this is really important. I think this is something we're going to be seeing a lot more. What's going on in the background here is that like things are happening 
against a backdrop of small-D democratic illegitimacy. Since 2000, 40 percent of presidential elections have been won by the loser of the popular vote. Republicans control the U.S. Senate despite winning fewer votes than, than Democrats, and that was true in, in 2016 as well. It's understood House Democrats will need to beat Republicans by – you know, as much as seven or eight percentage points in the popular vote to just take back the chamber. Democrats could win the like the House vote by, say, four or five percentage points and have a min- minority in the House. So you really could end um, the 2018 election with a president, Senate, and a House, all of which have fewer votes, in each of which the majority got fewer votes than the minority. On the day Brett Kavanaugh joins the Supreme Court, four of the nine justices will have been nominated by a president who lost the popular vote in their initial run for office. That court will then rule on the constitutionality of gerrymandering, of voter ID laws, of union dues, of campaign finance, Obamacare. They'll rule on all these cases that will shape who holds, and to your point about Medicare for all, who can effectively wield political power in the future. And so – what I think you're seeing here is a situation in which like the, the U.S. system of government is a compromise between states, um, particularly between big and small states. And that is now mapped onto um, differences between the, the Republican and Democratic coalitions in which Republicans are spread out in rural areas and small states and um, Democrats are more clustered in, in urban centers and, and big states. And so you're having this sort of building problem where the system is becoming less and less small-day democratic. That is, in theory, where this derives a lot of its legitimacy from. And so on the one hand, like that's benefiting Republicans and they're using that benefit to further enhance their own electoral power through things like voter ID laws. On the other hand, it's creating a, a situation where Democrats don't buy into the process by which decisions are happening. And like this seems to me like a real stress in the system that if it keeps getting worse, right, it's not hard to imagine a world where four or five presidential elections in a row are won by the loser of the popular vote, where Democrats really just don't have a chance in the House anymore. I don't really know if things keep going the way they look to be going, like how how long this is a stable equilibrium for. So let me ask you a question because you've been thinking about this a lot. Where do you feel like the Democrats head from here? Because it seems like, you know, if you're Republicans, this is a great outcome where you are wielding a lot of power with less vote. But and like I I feel like I see this internal debate and there's a good John Harris article in Politico kind of about like I think they almost see it as like fighting dirty. Do they even have an opportunity to do that? Or like, where do they go? So this gets to a piece I'm writing and thinking a lot about. So I'm very glad you brought up the words fighting dirty. There's a book by a political scientist named David Ferris called um, It's Time to Fight Dirty or It's Time for Democrats to Fight Dirty. And basically what he recommends in that book, there's a lot of stuff going on in that book. But what he is basically arguing is that Democrats are now on a rigged rigged game and they need to change rules. So they should make D.C. a state. They should make Puerto Rico a state. They should – put down 18-year terms on the Supreme Court. He actually recommends breaking California into seven or six states, I think it is. So there are a lot more Democratic senators. You know, he completely reshapes the House. There are all these things you can do actually subconstitutionally with the exception of the Supreme Court terms. You can do it with majorities, which Democrats still will have at some points in the future. And he basically says, look, it's time for them to fight dirty and, and reconstruct the system to their benefit. And one of the things I've been beginning to think about this as the like illegitimacy bind, because a lot of the ideas in there are not what I would call fighting dirty. They're what I would call like like trying to build more of a democracy. Like Puerto Rico, of course, should have representation in Congress and, and the Senate. So should D.C. Like these things are not – you don't need to justify them. They're not some kind of weird fighting dirty. They're how the system should work. The reason they don't work that way, like I would call it, is like fighting dirty. But right now – the way the system looks to Democrats is increasingly illegitimate. That John Harris piece where he talks about like Democrats need to be more ruthless, this Ferris piece, uh, like all kinds of tweets we're seeing and columns that are being written. 
But because of that, because the frame of what's happening is around partisan advantage, anything they do, so if they did any of these different things, it would be seen not as trying to make the system better reflect how America has evolved over time. It would be seen as fighting dirty. So that in itself would become illegitimate to the other side. And so you have a situation where the current equilibrium is illegitimate. But if Democrats came out tomorrow and like broke California in three and added D.C. and Puerto Rico and so got it like an, an unstoppable Senate majority, like that would be seen as illegitimate. Um, if they did all kinds of things you could imagine, it would be seen as illegitimate. And so there's like no real – there's like not a good answer here except for a system that is like going to increasingly – break apart. The political scientist uh, Jennifer Victor, as her pinned tweet, she says, like, democracy is not about who votes. It's about everybody deciding that the rules of who votes are just. Um, I'm paraphrasing here. But right now, like, the current rules are unjust, and that's believed very strongly by the left. Any alterations to those rules the left might make would be seen as unjust by the right. And so, like, that's not a good place for a political system to be. I want to strongly endorse this fighting dirty thing, though, because I think that, like, it's weird, right? So it's like Democrats are mad. So a sentence that a lot of Democrats want to agree with is it's time to start fighting dirty. And under the banner of that slogan have smuggled in a lot of things that like just aren't fighting dirty. In particular, like adding new states selectively to entrench partisan advantage is like not only not fighting dirty, like it's entirely within the traditions of the United States. Also, in D.C. and Puerto Rico, it's uh, not selectively. Uh, well, that, that's what I mean. Like, like, and if anything, it's the opposite, right? It's like the reason D.C. isn't a state yes. is conservative. It's actually not Republicans. It's like old-time Southern segregationist Democrats were fighting dirty, right? So it's like that's just fighting fairness. I think that the real question for Democrats, right, to, to ask themselves is – Shouldn't they put a higher priority on political system reforms, mm -hmm. right? It's hard to sometimes talk about this because there's this really good why not both meme that exists from an old ad. So if you ever try to suggest that people need to have a discussion about priorities on Twitter, you inevitably get that meme in your mentions. But the reality is – I do not look at mentions. <laughs> the reality is that like governing majorities need to decide what order they want to tackle problems, right? And in 2009, 2010, Democrats had a lot of political power in Washington, but not infinite political power. And like what they chose to do was pass a couple quick bills that George W. Bush had vetoed, which like that seemed smart, right? Because they, they knew they had the votes, the bills were written to tackle this fiscal stimulus problem and then to move on to a really achingly slow healthcare debate, right? In which both they decided healthcare was a key priority, but also, like, virtually every member, like, would not just delegate this to somebody else, right? It was like, we are all going to fight about this health care bill for a year. And, like, that, for better or worse, is, like, what they chose to do, right? They could have made an automatic voter registration bill. They could have addressed D.C. statehood. There's, like, a, a lot of things that could have been done, but, like, that's what they wanted to do. And... A huge share of the people who I see wanting Democrats to, quote unquote, fight dirty, which I think just means pay more attention to political reform as a topic, also want Democrats to create some kind of single payer healthcare system. And it is very unlikely to me, like the wisdom of this meme aside, that a hypothetical Democratic governing majority is going to simultaneously rework the entire healthcare system, but like 
also spit out like a dozen different political reform bills. And it seems to me that like the message of this is, again, like not to fight dirty, but that political reform is really, really significant, right? And that part of what we're seeing with this ACA lawsuits and things like that is that like having an off-kilter political system makes it impossible to entrench policy gains that you want to make. Whereas like if you change representation in the Senate, if you pass legislation that will cut down gerrymandering in the House, if you tackle campaign finance reform as an issue, and these other things, like you will create a a climate in which progressive ideas can bloom. And you shouldn't even say Democrats versus Republicans, right? Because like I fully believe that if no reforms are adopted, like Democrats will adapt to the slanted political system. It's just like they will adapt by underweighting the interests of African-Americans, Latinos, residents of big cities, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like that is just also a bad outcome. Conversely, like if Democrats adopt good political reforms, it's not like they will rule forever and Republicans will never win again. It's that they will need to adjust their positions to be more reflective of the majority. Right now, because they can win with 46 percent, they like aim for 48 percent. If they needed 50, like, you know, we would just have a better country. But I think your point about priority setting, like, is a good explanation for why you don't see Democrats tackling a lot of these reforms or, like, the idea of, like, fighting dirty adding states. Like, the idea of creating a single-payer system, I feel like that is such, like, political salience that is a benefit you are delivering very directly to people. Like, it is a thing you are creating. Whereas, like, D.C. statehood, like, I live in D.C. I would love to have representation. But, like, for my, like, friends where I grew up in Seattle, for, like, people out in California, like, D.C. statehood isn't as much. Well, it feels it, like a it's much not something longer you do for term. your constituents, right. by definition. Yes, it is something you're doing for like you know, literally none of us in DC are. You're doing it for someone who people who aren't constituents in the Senate right now. Where it, a lot of the things that Democrats are often doing are expanding the size and scope of government, and almost a lot of these other changes we're talking about that would allow them to expand the size and scope of government in the future are just more boring in a way. Like, they're not, like, they're the structural reforms that, uh, you know, are are less salient than saying, well, we're going to give everybody health care. Yeah, and it's one of these things. I think they'd be boring, well, some of them, until the moment they, like, got proposed. Not the D.C. Puerto Rico one, although I, I really do think, particularly after Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rico statehood would be something that would make sense to people. That there were these polls showing that, like, about half of Americans had no idea Puerto Ricans were American citizens. It was just like – like obviously there's a problem there. And like when you look at how badly Hurricane Maria was managed despite what Donald Trump says, they're like clearly bringing it more fully into the, the union would I think help. But I just – I really want to push on this thing about fighting dirty because I think it gets to like a, a broader problem. I think we have so lost any language of like what values our political system is supposed to express and be built on. Like we don't even know how to talk about it anymore. So to me, it's like what we're talking about here, like up and down the line is just democracy, right? Like there should not be an electoral college. It's dumb. Um, Like it should be easier, not harder for people to vote. You should have people who live in D.C. and Puerto Rico um, have representation uh, in the bodies that govern them. I mean like on and on and on down the line, like almost every one of these things being proposed is just more democracy, particularly in places where the outcomes of democracy are, are, are being undermined. And by the way, not undermined in ways that the like founding fathers intended. Like the electoral college was meant to stop a person like Donald Trump, not let them in. Like the whole thing 
is completely attenuated from what it was meant to build. But it, like day to day, it seems to me that we have no theory of what our system is supposed to do or be like or be built upon except for the way it works right now. Like our, our entire theory is status quo bias. And we sort of sometimes frame that in veneration from the founders except for like we directly elect U.S. senators and like nobody's – or not that many people are talking about going back. Uh, Jonah Goldberg that. tweeted yesterday that his solution to the Senate was to repeal the 17th Amendment. Well, see, there you go. So some people are. But I think something that's interesting is that there used to be not a lot of constitutional amendments. Our constitution is uniquely different to amend among advanced democracies. But there were constitutional amendments. It happened a lot in the 18th and 19th and even to some degree the early 20th centuries. Um, and then it stopped. In the last 50 years, it just stopped. We've become really unwilling to touch our constitution. We have become reverent of it in a way that people closer to it were not. And so there's this weird thing happening where we – like simultaneously, I don't think have any kind of real discussion going on about what our political system is supposed to be like except for within its debate about partisan power and control. And we also don't have any like ongoing conversation or even process for how one would reform it because we've just decided to like give up on ever touching the constitution again. And like that's not good. Like the country does need to adapt its political system. It always has and it always has adapted its political system. That's why there are all these amendments in the constitution. The idea that we've stopped having a theory of like what we want our system to reflect and also like any viable conversation about how to make it reflect that, that's actually a bad thing for America. Like it's like not going to be good if we have a completely static, undynamic, non-adaptable political system going forward. And it's going to be even worse if the reason we have it is the idea that like you can never touch anything because it might help one side or the other. A point David Ferris makes in his book that, that, I, that I think is a very good point is that it was I think in the 70s that we – yeah, I think 70s when we brought the voting age down from 21 to 18 because we were sending – kids to die in Vietnam at 18, but they couldn't vote on whether or not the war was just. And it makes a point that there's, there's no way that would happen today because like, you would look at 18 to 21-year-olds and say, well, they're going to vote for Democratic. And so like no Republicans in Congress or Republican states would ever permit that. And it's like he's right, I think, about how that would go today. But also like that's terrible. <laughs> and so uh, it just seems to me that we're in a we're in a pretty bad spot here. Yeah. But – well – it is. It I've got a lot of that bad. specific. Yeah. Today, when I when I finish something, it's like yeah. it is pretty bad. I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's interesting that like sub Rosa, you see an increasing abandonment of the ideals of democracy among elite conservatives, right? Like. And to the extent that, like, it's not considered a big deal anymore, right? So, like, Peter Thiel is one of the most influential mega donors behind the president of the United States. He's also on the board of the most influential media and technology company in the world. And he is an avowed opponent of political democracy, right? And, like, that seems like a big alarming deal to me. But it's clearly not in any way alarming to the CEO of the most powerful media company in the world or to the president of the United States. And like that is even more alarming. It suggests that a much wider circle of incredibly rich and powerful people think that we shouldn't have democracy in America. I want to go that. I actually don't think that's Zuckerberg's opinion. I think I, that's going a step I'm further. I'm not saying he is or isn't. But, but I, like, I will say it, with Trump, I think it is in practice his opinion. Right. right? And, that we should have a democracy. I think in a way that like the founders sort of thought too, like – a democracy for people like Donald Trump, but right. not like a. But but I mean, democracy. you know, Trump himself. 
Trump is such a weirdo. You know, it can sometimes be like, well, Trump thinks blah, blah, blah. But it's like I'm saying like I think the really thoughtful conservatives in their salons and stuff, like this is what they think. There's been an incredible resurgence of uh, highbrow intellectuals espousing the brand classical liberal. Right. And like one of the big points of classical liberalism was that you shouldn't have political equality. Right. Because conditions of political equality would lead to demands for economic redistribution and that those should not be met. Right. That you should have to some extent representative institutions and the rule of law and, you know, this and that. But I think it's very much reflected in this jurisprudence of like throwing out healthcare extensions and in this idea of, you know, we should have elections and they should be fair, but it should be really challenging to vote. Right. Because, you know, it's like you're setting the bar for everything high and you're trying to stop the unwashed rabble. And like it's probably good to disproportionately disenfranchise people of color because their identity politics is bad, right? And that, like you are preserving a, a classical liberal order that requires a delicate balance because you want competitive elections, but like you don't really want popular accountability. And like I think that that idea – it drives a lot of people. It, it drives me a little nuts when I hear people saying like, well, it would be unfair to not overrepresent small states. But I'm at least like heartened when I hear people making like bad arguments that the Senate isn't undemocratic because it means that like on some level they agree that the country should be a democracy. But like I think a lot of people, you know, influential people on the right like don't think it should be. And like that's the trouble. Whew. All right. Let's take a break, and then we're going to go to our research paper. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. This is a good one. Take two, SAT retaking and college enrollment gaps by Joshua Goodwin, Oded Garance, Jonathan Smith. When I was in high school, I took the SAT. Then I took it again. I was hoping to get a better score the second time. I didn't. So I just submitted the first score because that was better. But obviously, a lot of people who take it a second time, you do wind up getting a better score. And it's a no-brainer because, like, you only need to submit one. I only took it once. Right. but I took it for the first time in eighth grade to get into a gifted program. You took the SAT in eighth grade? <laughs> yes. Um, Not like the PSAT, the SAT? Oh, no, I took the real SAT Whoa. in eighth grade because I was cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am not as gifted as Sarah. Um, at any rate, it turns out that most people do not retake their SATs, um, and that disproportionately racial minorities and low-income students don't retake their SATs. Um, and what this this research shows basically is that retaking helps your chances of getting into college. People who don't retake uh, wind up going to worse schools. And that in particular, because poor people and minorities are, are less likely to do retaking, it creates these disparities. 20% of the income gap in enrollment in four-year institutions, they say, could be closed by getting low-income students to retake SATs at the same rate as high-income students and 10% of the racial gap. Those are big gap closings for like almost no remedy. 
Particularly considering, like, how, like, geared up people get about college admissions procedures and, like, how, like, incredibly fraught affirmative action lawsuits and and so on and so forth are. It seems like if you imagine a world of, like, perfect good faith, like, a really easy solution here. Yeah. I think we talk about a lot of policy problems that seem intractable. And this seems like one where you could have a small intervention with big payoff. I think one of the things that jumped out to me was about the fee waivers that exist for the SAT. So if you are low income, I think it costs about like 50 or $60 to take the SAT, but if you are low income, you can get a waiver. One of the things these folks find in their data is that 43% of students with family income under $30,000 do not use the fee waiver, even though they appear to be eligible yes. for that fee waiver. And that seems like such a small place where one could focus and have like, I don't know if it's like, publicizing the fee waiver, you know, actually like evaluating people and not like proactively charging everybody, but only charging the people who are above the income threshold. It seems a little crazy that this basically public function has been outsourced that to also. a for-profit company that <laughs> yes. now has this fee waiver system. Yes. But if like, that seems like one space, like where it looks like half, nearly like half of the people with very low income are not even using the fee waiver, which could be a huge obstacle to retaking. Like, that seems like a place where, where some change could happen. So there's also a couple of interesting things on why retaking the SAT is very helpful. So the authors here find that for students who initially score in the lower half of the SAT distribution, retaking once boosts um, super scores, which I will define in a moment, by about 120 points on the 2,400-point scale. If you're like an oldster like us on the weeds, you might remember the SAT being 1,600 points, but now it's 2,400 uh, just for the record. And higher scoring students do not do as well on the, the, the second time. I mean, they get a little bit of a boost, but it, it's smaller than lower scoring students. And so the, one of the reasons for this is that 75% of colleges say they will only use a top score. And of that 75%, 80% define the top score as your super score, which is – so the 2,400-point the um, yeah. SAT has three 800-point parts. They will take your highest score on each of those parts from across all of your tries. Right. So if you, like, try three times and so you, you can get, be like, very strategic and have, like, your math SAT, yes. your verbal, and, like, your essay right. and, and prepare differently for all of that. And so it's like the system is really rigged, actually, towards the people retaking. And so if you're retaking, like, it'll really help. I also just think one of, the, like, the broad points about this is SATs, like, a lot of tests are meant to create, like, quote-unquote meritocracies, right? It's a – like an unbiased way of seeing how people compare. Because like schools are different, upbringings are different, but the SAT, everybody takes it and it's the same. But of course it isn't, right? You have tests prep, you have, you know, you're, you're cultured in places, you're taking it in eighth grade to get into gifted programs. You're taking it multiple times because like, you know, your parents want you to and they got mad when your score wasn't good enough or you got mad when it wasn't good enough. And like people around you take it multiple times so you understand that as a thing. You know, we have a lot of things like this in society where we have something that is meant to create like an unbiased piece of evidence about how we all rank, but of course just begins to reflect with more and more precision, but now in a way that is like a little bit less in- interrogatable, the disparities that already exist in society. So yes, it would be good if more people took the SAT multiple times, and it seems like that is something we should be able to improve. But I keep looking at this and thinking that like if you get that big of a, an effect off of just taking it a couple times, it's like how big the effect is of every other advantage going into like Wealthier kids who get more test prep and grow up in homes and blah, blah, blah. It's, well, it's, it's like, a lot. Wait, I was going to suggest that we ban right. retaking <laughs> rather than encourage more people to retake. Oh, that's interesting. Right? Because, like, that seems administratively more simple. I mean, obviously less 
lucrative. No, but, but that the, seems but, way worse because, like, I like someone with a lot of resources could really prep. Like, it seems like it might increase disparities. But the retake again. I want to go back to the thing I said at the beginning. The retaking matters more for people right. who score in the lower half. Right. Like, it's a bigger boost. I mean, if, I was going to go further and just say ban the SAT. Well, like, but if I don't it is think— Well, well so here, 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 here I do want to weigh in a little— I don't disagree with what Ezra said, but, like, it's worth saying that the SAT, as flawed as it is, probably injects meritocracy into the system relative to what it would be like if it was based entirely on how skilled your parents and high school guidance counselor are at, like— padding your resume. I buy that. Um, You you know, and so, like, the whole question around this, it's like, how can you do better, right? Because, like, people who have advantages in life, like, have a lot of advantages in life. It seemed to me that, like, if you had no retaking, right, people would just, admissions officers would have to at least just, like, slightly discount how much they care about small gaps because you know there's, like, a random term. But, like, you set the bar so that it's like, look, Try to prepare for this one test. Like, that's something that people can maybe do rather than, like, try to prepare three different times and take it again and again and again. It's just, like, rewards you for having, if nothing else, just, like, parents who are, like, really amped up about your college admissions. I don't know. If I go back to Ezra's point that the people who are gaining the most are the people who, you know, started off who are in lower income brackets, who started off with the lower score. Like, you're kind of— True. Denying them the chance to catch up. I mean, right. maybe I want you to take ten SATs. <laughs> SAT to do just do like a month where you show up every day. Right. I <laughs> mean, that could be like the way you flip it, right? Where it becomes the norm that like everyone like takes. Two. I think one of the things they point out is just like a matter of timing. That if you look at like lower income kids, they're more likely to take their SAT in twelfth grade when yes. you know there really isn't even time to take it a second time. Whereas higher income kids are starting. Taken eleventh, perhaps junior high. I think, eighth grade. I, think po- I think my point on this is actually a little different than where it's getting taken here, which is there is no system that corrects for all the advantages in life. Like yes. I personally like the SAT because that's the only way I got into college because like I did very badly in school. But like I think that one of the lessons of papers like this one, where you see a pretty big one hundred and twenty point increase just on retaking for people in the lower half of the of the um, bracket. I think it's just a reminder of, like, how contingent all this is and how careful we should be in terms of the strength of the conclusions we draw on it. I'm not saying that there's banning it. I'm not I'm not for banning it. Like, I'm not saying we should take it 10 times. I don't think there's a perfect system here. I just think that when you get in data like this, it just – it does show you that the system we've built, whether or not it's, like, an optimal system, which probably is not, but it's – it's very contingent, even in the places where it is supposed to be least contingent. You know, the other thing about this is that, like, it makes me think about every college administrator I've ever heard talk about how much they're, like, trying to foster diversity in their class. Because just, like, one thing that this screams to me is that, like, they're actually not trying that hard, right? Like, this is, like, a kind of obvious, like, thing to ask yourself about. Like, is our uh, standardized test like, evaluation system, massively biased. And, like, it is. And, like, in a really kind of simplistic way, right? Like, if you start taking the test in 10th grade and then just, like, take it over and over. And, and, like, it's their own policy is to say, like, they will take the super score, right? Like, they don't need to have that be the policy. You could take I don't that. even think that was the policy before. Like, I don't think super scores existed. Like I don't remember it. I just remember they took your highest – 
score of the whole Well, regardless. But I mean, right, like, that's just a pure, like, admissions office choice. Like, how do you think about a person who's taken multiple SAT tests? And, like, they've chosen, I would say, poorly here. Like, it's anything, right? Like, you should average if you have multiple data points. Yeah. All right. Well, there's nothing average about the weeds. Yep. Fantastic (laughs) podcast. Fantastic Facebook group. It's a great place to go. Uh, Continue the discussion. Everyone should, uh, you know, post their old standardized test scores. And uh, we'll see see who's really smart out there. Um, No, don't do that. I know. I know about Matt's SATs. No. What was your SAT score, Matt? What? What? What was your SAT score? 1420. Oh, minus 1490. There you go. The winner. 1060 in eighth grade. Nice. (laughs) Gifted. Well, on Um, on these 2400-point SATs, you both look terrible. Yes. Yes, They changed it. Um, Okay. So with that, uh, let's thank our uh, engineer and producer, Griffin Tanner. Uh, Thanks to all of you for listening. And the Weeds will be back tomorrow with yet another Weeds midterm special. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.